0: Church, open your Bibles. We are going to be back in the book of 2 Samuel again today. 2 Samuel, turn to chapter 11. I want to make sure everybody's tracking with where we are in the story. Last week, remember, we had a big change in David's life. He became the king. He waited for a long time for that, and David became the king. Peace was in the land. He took Jerusalem as his capital. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to that location, and everything seems to be going Great. In fact, last week the biggest thing really of David's life happens. David says, You know what, God? I think you need a house. I'm going to build you a house right here for the protection of that ark. And you know, to make you look good. And God says, You know what? We're not doing that. What we're doing is, I'm building you a house, David, and I'm going to make you a dynasty. Out of your lineage is going to become one who has a kingdom that never ends. Greater than David could have ever imagined. And so David is at this awesome time of his life. What could go wrong? So much could go wrong, and we are going to discover that today. This is an iconic passage. Chances are good if you're a Bible reader at all, you have run across this passage. It's beautifully written. And I would guarantee you that you've gone across it many times, like I have, And there's some things that you have perhaps missed or never known about this passage. That happened to me this week. Think of how many times I've read this passage. And this week, as I really got into it, I said, wow, there are some things there that I've missed. I'm hoping to bring some of those things to your attention today. The passage is one that you know already. It's David's downfall. It's David's uh, sin with Bathsheba. But it's really a series of decisions that David makes. It's not just one thing. It's a series of things that happen in David's life and a series of decisions that compound each other as he goes along. So I want to study today the anatomy of David's downfall with the hopes that this will help all of us avoid that in our own lives, avoid the pain of that in our own lives, avoid the disappointment with God that we feel as a result of that in our own lives, And today I'm going to read section by section. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We're going to go section by section through the scriptures. And again, we're going to discover four things, four decisions that David made that led to his downfall. We're going to start again in verse 1. And this is what it says. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of uh, Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then he returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. The first step in David's downfall is actually unchecked power. David has been at peace, but right now he's at war. And he's at war with the people that are called the Ammonites. A map is going to help you. It helped me. So here is the nation of Ammon. And it is to the right of the Jordan River. You see Jerusalem where David is right now. And Rabbah, or sometimes called Rabbah, is to the right. That's the king or the, excuse me, the uh, capital of the city of Ammon. David is fighting a battle over there right now. And what he's decided to do is an ancient technique of war, he's besieging the city. So he's not letting anything into the city or anything out of the city. And that usually can take, you know, months or weeks or months in order to accomplish the fall of a city in that way. So David says, Joab, you go off, you hang out there, you besiege the city, and I'm going to come back here and stay at my, uh, my palace and I'll wait for the good word that's going to come back to me. Before we go on to what happened at the rooftop, because that's important, I want you to discover something that I discovered this week. David has a woman problem. And we've been giving hints along the way uh, throughout the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 17, 17 warns kings of this. It says, a king must not marry many wives or his heart will be led astray. But this is exactly what David has been doing. Earlier in the book of Samuel, Samuel chapter uh, 2, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, this is what it says. It gives us a list of the sons that were born to, Sam, uh, to David up to that time. 2 Samuel chapter 3 says, And the sons were born to David at Hebron Amnon of Ahinoam, Chiliab of Abigail, Absalom of Makkah, Adonijah of Haggath. Shephatiah of Abital and Ithrium of Egla. That's a mouthful, you know? Those are some names right there. But what I want you to notice from that is that there are six different sons from six different wives. Now, the narrator just gives that dispassionately. He doesn't comment on it. He doesn't say a thumbs up or thumbs down. He just tells us the information. But we are caused to ask the question, what's going on with David? What's going on with all of the power that he feels in his life right now? And what is going on that's leading him to get all of these women into his life to fill some aspect of his need for his his power? So make no mistake, David is already uh, on point for all the good-looking women when he goes onto the roof that night. And he goes onto the roof and he sees a woman bathing. Now, she was not trying to get his attention. That woman was just going through the normal things of life of living in a city in ancient times. I'm sure she was discreet as she could be. But David had an excellent vantage point. I learned that when I have been in Israel two times. And I've gone to that part of the city where David's palace likely existed. I've got a picture here of what the spot looks like. You know, we're standing up here on this top side up here. Down in the lower area is the valley. And uh, that's the Kidron Valley. And then you see there's homes up on the other side. So David, from this vantage point, when I was there, it was so much more evident than even this picture gives. He could see everything that was below him on his side of the hill. But on the other side of the valley, he could also see all the homes that were over there also. And so David has this vantage point to, well, to spy out and look at things. And he sees the bombshell named Bathsheba. And he says, I've got to have her. So he sends and asks some questions. Find out who she is. He sends a servant. The servant comes back and tells him that this is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now again, those names pass right by us. We don't even give those names a second thought. But I want to help you understand who those people are that she's associated with. Here it is. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Oh, okay, pass by that. No, 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 it's not so fast. Here's what this means She is the daughter of, or the granddaughter of Ahithophel. So Ahithophel is the father of, of Eliam, who is then uh, the, uh, the, the daughter of, of Bathsheba. So it goes Ahithophel is the grandpa. And Ahithophel is David's, one of best, David's advisors. You know, it's like a member of your cabinet, somebody that you know you rely upon regularly and that you have a great respect for. And that's who this woman is, the granddaughter of that man. In addition to that, Uriah the Hittite is listed in 2 Samuel later in the book as one of David's fierce 30 fighting men, men of honor, men of distinction, men of loyalty. And so this guy's set apart as a tremendous fighter. And so what I'm trying to say is this woman's connected. This woman's connected to David in important ways, and that doesn't slow him down at all. David, that's just a a speed bump, and David goes right over that, and he is going to go and have this woman. David, in very quick succession, does things. It's very stark, very economic in the way that this is given to us, because here's what David does. He sent, he took, he lay. Not much description there. It's just action. Bam. David sent, he took, he lay, and that is the prerogative of any king. After all, a king is a man of action. He simply does what he wants. He sends out orders, and people comply to the king. I want you to notice something here. We are not given almost any emotion from Bathsheba, almost no comments at all from her. And we wonder, what's going on with Bathsheba during this whole time? And almost in the story, she's almost a pawn. I mean, she, She's there, but kind of not there. David's the one that's really center stage. And so you wonder, how's Bathsheba with all this? Well, I think there's three options. We are not told in the scriptures, so this is just Brian conjecturing. But either she's naive, so David's sending for her, and she doesn't know why the king wants to see her, but, you know, all right, I'll go. Maybe she felt powerless. How do you say no to the king? I think that's very likely here. And number three, maybe, you know what, maybe she's missing her husband or not missing her husband, but wants affection. And so she's willing to have this tryst, as it were, with David. We don't really know because the focus the entire time is on David. David is the one steering this ship. David is the one that's going to be complicit. And so that's the first part of David's downfall is his appetites. He's got unbridled power. He can do anything that he wants. And there's an old saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely, and the longer I live, the more I see that played out. And so beware of any time you see a leader that has uh, unrestricted power, and I'm always aware of that even for myself, don't put myself in a position where I've got that level of power. Try to mitigate that as much as you can because bad things happen when that occurs. And usually things that happen like this the dominoes begin to fall in sin when we are at maybe the best times of our lives, not the worst when you're battling fires all around you and alligators up to your armpits oftentimes you don't have time to think about sinning but it's when that moment of silence comes it's when you have lots of time to think about some of those appetites to think about how you might act on that that actually sin can creep into your life and that is what happens with david there's another old saying that idleness is the devil's playground. And that oftentimes is when we find ourselves getting into bad territory, is when we are at the best of times with a lot of time and and availability of, of resources around us. You may be saying right now, well, you know what, I'm so glad I'm not like David. You know, the only people really in our world that probably need to worry about this is Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. Those are the guys that have all the resources, and so they're the ones that really have to worry about this. And whoo, I, I don't have that level of liberty and power. Not so quickly. Do you own a smartphone or a computer and have some alone time? Hmm, you've got capacity. I'm wondering if maybe you have a position where you overlook some money on behalf of an organization. Maybe your company or another organization of some kind. Uh, you've got capacity and opportunity. Do you have time at work with others or maybe time at, uh, at school with others? You know, that is affording opportunity for these kinds of things to occur. Friends, you have a level of unchecked freedom. And any time that is happening, that is step one in the drop of the dominoes. And so again, I don't want to, uh, for you to pass by this too quickly. David's first opportunity for sin was occurring because of his position in life. He was finally now in a successful position, and David had unchecked power. And what would he do with that power? Well, he's going to use that for himself. All right, we move to step two, and step two begins in verse six. Step two involves the cover-up, and so this is the way that it's written. So David sent word to Joab... "'Send me Uriah the Hittite.' "'And Joab sent Uriah to David. "'When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing "'and how the people were doing and how the war was going. "'Then David said to Uriah, "'Go down to your house and wash your feet.' "'And Uriah went out of the king's house, "'and there followed him a present from the king. "'But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house,' with all the servants of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As, sh- as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today and also tomorrow, and I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. The next phase is the cover-up. David has got to do something in order to cover his tracks, and so he kicks in motion this plan to bring back Uriah. And David, uh, you know, he's not even having any emotion at all regarding the, uh, the issue with Bathsheba. Uh, He doesn't even send word to her at all about this. He is just in this motion of now wanting to cover his tracks. David simply kicks into motion, and he is going to outsmart everybody. He's going to use his power at this time. And so he asks Uriah to come back off the battlefield. And I'm sure Uriah is at first a little bit you know, surprised. He's like, why would David want me? I mean, He's got all these messengers. He's called Joab back, but you know, why would he want me? And so David does some small talk with him. And then he says, I want you to go and uh, go back to your house. I want you to go with your wife, and I want you to, as it were, let her wash your feet. And that is clearly a metaphor for something a little bit more right now. And so that's what David is hoping happens is that they'll sleep together and then it will give a a reasonable explanation for why she's pregnant and David will be able to cover his tracks. Now, it never uh, uh, occurred to me before, uh, I've never seen this in this passage, but do you notice here that David actually sent gifts along with him? And so David is sending gifts. And I wondered, what are those gifts? Are, Are they, you know, chocolates maybe rose petals, champagne. In the ancient world, that's probably not what it is. It's probably pomegranates and dates and perfume. But the whole idea is that he's trying to set the mood. And so he's saying, go with these gifts and go and be with your wife and this will be a wonderful thing for you, Uriah. I'm giving you this this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to come off the battlefield and do this. To David's surprise, Uriah doesn't comply. Uriah goes and sleeps at David's palace with David's servants, the lowly people, and that's who he attaches himself to. And when David asks him, what gives? Why have you not gone and been with your wife? He says to him, a righteous answer, I couldn't do that. Are you kidding me? All the troops of Israel are all fighting. They're camping out in the open. They're putting their lives at risk. I could not go and give myself that advantage when they are fighting and putting up for the country and and serving God in that way. There's no way I could do that. And so this Hittite, again a Hittite is one of the original Canaanites, that's who Uriah is. He's not even originally Jewish, but he's become a Jew as a result of Israel arriving in the land. This Hittite, who's a foreigner, is teaching David what it means to be loyal. And so again, he even goes a step further, David does, and he says, stay a couple more days, and he gets him drunk two nights in a row, and he still doesn't go back to his wife. And so David is at a crossroads because he's tried the cover-up, but it has not worked. The cover-up is always something that we are tempted to do. (laughs) It's, It's sometimes just an easy path to take, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, what do they do when they sin? They cover themselves with fig leaves, and when God arrives into the the, the pasture that day or the land that day, they hide from him. And so again, that's always the thing that happens when we sin, we are tempted to cover up. There is a big deal around government around February, and government officials love to go and hold up groundhogs in order to predict how many more days of winter will be there. And Puxatawney Phil, many of you know, is the very famous groundhog in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. But he's not the only groundhog. There are other competing groundhogs that are used to try to predict how many more days of winter there will be. Not to be outdone, Staten Island has a groundhog, and oftentimes the, uh, the 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 governor, excuse me, the mayor of the city of New York will go to Staten Island, and they will hold the groundhog in order to predict how many more days of winter there will be. I want to show you from 2014, Mayor De Blasio, who goes to hold the groundhog named Chuck. Here it is. <laughs> a good time, right? We held the groundhog. I don't know what the prediction was for how many more weeks of winter there was that year. But this became groundhog gate because there was a lot of things that came out of this. First of all, that groundhog died two days later. You saw him fall right there. That's a sad thing, right? And when they kind of did the autopsy on the groundhog, they found out it was... Pursue it to a fall, internal injuries. Now, they kept that from the mayor. They told the mayor unofficially, the groundhog died of natural causes. You know, nothing to see here. Why would they do that? Because the governor's office is responsible for half of their budget of $3.25 million a year. And so they want to keep good with the mayor. In addition to that, as news reporters started to dig into the story a little bit more, they found out Chuck is the official groundhog, and they kind of patterned everything upon Chuck the groundhog. That day, Chuck was not in service. It was Charlotte that was in service. So the the, the mayor was actually holding the unofficial groundhog. And why had they done that? Well, they did that because a few years earlier, another mayor was there, and Chuck had bitten the mayor, and they didn't want the mayor to get bit. So they gave him an unofficial groundhog. Why do I bring this up? It's easy to cover up anytime we think we're going to suffer some loss. Why didn't they just tell everybody, man, we're so sorry that the groundhog died? I mean, it was a you know, terrible tragedy. But, but no, don't do that because you want to make good with the, with the mayor. And all of these things just start spiraling out of control, uh, hiding something at first seems like such a good and easy way to go. But usually, it is a ticking time bomb, and it won't go away. It just kind of keeps on burrowing its way in deeper and deeper. All right, let's move to the third. The third piece of David's downfall is going to begin in verse 14. And the third piece is going to be that David is going to double down. Here's what we pick up in 14, it says, um, In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, So Uriah, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. David doubles down. David could have just stopped when he realized Uriah was not complying, and he could have just come out and said, You know what? I slept with Bathsheba and accepted the consequences of that. But no, that's not what David is going to do, because powerful men rarely do that. David makes plans, and he is going to end this once and for all, and he's going to have Uriah killed. So he's going to now move from adultery now to murder, and David is making this plan. Little does Uriah know that David has written a note to Joab and he says to Uriah, he seals it up, puts his his seal on it, take this to Joab. Little does Joab know it's his death sentence that he's carrying back to Joab. And Joab gets that letter and Joab is David's hatchet man. He's the guy that does everything David asks him to do, doesn't even ask any questions. He just complies and fulfills it. And so again, Joab is the guy. He puts Uriah at the front lines where he knows he's going to be at a specifically difficult space where he's likely to become overrun. All the men pull back and they kill Uriah. Only problem is there's some other men that fall. Oh, he'd only planned for Uriah to get killed, but now all these other guys have gotten killed also. What do we do with that? Here's what I want you to hear today. So many times when we double down. So, you know, we've already gone through this side of sinning. We've already gone through the side of covering up. Hasn't worked. And so now the double down phase comes where it gets even worse. And sometimes individuals are, are hurt in the process of that, that we had no intention of hurting. In this case, again, there's all these men that die around Uriah that nobody counted on were going to happen. But it, it did David probably got the message on this and said, well, you know, it's collateral damage. You know, I've lost a few more guys. You know, once you've sinned, we always are facing a crossroads. Do I confess it now, or do I take another step that is even more extreme than the one I just took? And someone will always potentially get hurt by our deceit. Usually, it's a person that we cannot imagine, and we can't imagine how much pain they're going to face as a result of our Sin. Introduce you to the 1972 Ford Pinto. Here it is. Some of you remember that car. I had somebody say, uh, Carlton I think it was, that said that uh, they they bought a Pinto in 1974. So he well remembers that car. It's the first subcompact car that Ford ever built. In other words, the first kind of really small car. And uh, this, this car uh, you know, sold a lot of cars, but over time, it had a problem. And some of you know what that problem was. The problem didn't really become pronounced until it was taken to court. The Ford Pinto had a problem because its gas tank was in the back of the car, and when the car was rear-ended, at times it would explode into flames. There's the story of Lily Gray who stalled in the center lane of a California freeway, and her car was struck from behind at 50 miles an hour, resulting in an explosion of her car and her death. And that's tragic, but people who heard the case were even more incensed when they found out that Ford had done an actuary study. And they calculated how much would we have to pay out if we... Uh, brought that car back recalled it and replaced the gas tank and how much would we have to pay out if we just paid the the individuals who were hurt by this or were were killed by this and they ran the numbers and said it's a lot less money to just let the injuries happen little did they know that so many individuals would be hurt by this And little did they know that the court, once this decision came before a jury, mm, they weren't too pleased to find that out. And so there were a landmark uh, at that time, uh, awards that were given to individuals who had been hurt as a result of this. When we double down, we risk injury that we can't even imagine. People that will be hurt. We don't know who, we don't know how many, but anytime we double down, there will be somebody that is hurting in that process. And that is one of the risks that we take, again, of trying to hide this even more and taking an even more extreme action. All right, let's close in on the end of this chapter. We're now picking up in verse 25. This is the fourth step that David takes in attempting to uh, cover up and hide his sin. David sent to the messengers... Thus shall you say to Joab, again, he's sending this message after he gets the message back from Joab that Uriah has died, and so have some of the other soldiers. And so he sends message back to Joab, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband, And when the morning was over, David sent her and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The final step that David takes is what I'm calling guilty victory. He sends word to Joab, Joab, don't let this bother you too much, all right? The sword devours whom the sword devours. And even Joab, as calloused as he is, is like, what are you talking about? You can't whitewash this thing. You sent for me to kill him, and I had him killed. So don't wax eloquent on me right now by telling me, I mean, David, uh, we're not told that Joab's saying this, but I'm imagining what Joab is feeling. is like, David, who are you trying to kid? I mean, you know, we all know what happened here. But this is what's going on in David's mind at this moment. David, we find out... uh, has a mourning time, or at least Bathsheba mourns. We're not told that David mourns at all over this death. And then David comes and has Bathsheba to be his wife, and she comes and bears him a son. And I want you to imagine, what does the palace feel like at this moment? What does it feel like? In fact, we don't even know. Does Bathsheba even know that she had, he had Uriah killed? She knows that he tried to send Uriah to her house to sleep with her, but does she even know that all of that going on? And I'm here to tell you, this is, no, this is no really thing you want. It's no recipe for the kind of marriage that is a flourishing marriage. It's built upon a bunch of lies, and it's built upon a bunch of mistrust. And so David has won, but at what cost? David has a victory, but it's a hollow one because of all of the guilt that's going on on the inside of his own soul. There's a story I reread just this week, and it's the story by Edgar Allan Poe, 1934, and the, excuse me, 1843, 1934, 1843, and it's the story called The Tale to Heart. Raise your hand if you've ever read that story, about half of you. So I'm going to have to tell the story or a little bit of it. There's a man a story. It's a short story. It's worth reading. So if uh, you have a little minute, go and read the story because it's fascinating. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe reports that there's a man who has a house and there's a, a guest in his house. We don't know why the man's there, but he lives with him and he's an old man. And there's something about the man he's disliked. The man never did anything to him, but he's got this eye that looks like a vulture and it drives him crazy. So he makes plans to kill this man. Elaborate plans. He even rehearses it over and over again, and he takes the man's life. Very, very antiseptic in the way that he goes about it. Boom, it's done. He dismembers the man and puts the man under the floorboards of his house. Wooden floorboards. He buries him in the ground under the house under the floorboards, and the deed is done. Until there are detectives that come to his house one day just to ask some questions. And he's answering the questions very fluidly, very adroitly, until he hears something he can't get out of his head. It's the beating of a heart. And the beating of the heart is coming underneath the floorboards of his own house. And it's getting louder and louder and louder. He bursts into a confession just to try to get away from the beating of the heart that's underneath his floorboards. And this is the essence of his own guilt is he can't get away as beautifully arranged as the murder was. He can't get away from the consequences of that. And when we cover up, oftentimes there is the beating of that heart that goes on in our own conscience and in our own souls. And so that's simply the story. And I want you to hear how beautifully the the, the writer ends this section because he just ends it with one sentence. And we know he's right, and we know there's gonna be a problem as a result of that. Here's the one sentence, 1127, but the thing that David did, that David had done, displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God had seen it all. He recorded every word. He knew intimately every emotion. He saw every action and every deed. God saw it all. And David's downfall, again, was a series of decisions that all compounded themselves over time. We don't much like the word sin anymore, and so we use all kinds of synonyms to get away from it. Mistakes, oversights, dysfunction, addiction, codependency, omission. Use anything but that word sin but the Bible is very clear. David sinned that day with Bathsheba, and he sinned in the killing of Uriah. His whole story is going to unravel next week, and we're going to want to follow along with that. All of us are truly like David, because, not because we have as much power as David, but we have enough power as David had in order to bring trouble, in order to displease God, in order to sin and hurt other people. And so some of you are saying today, maybe... Maybe there's the beating of the, 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 the heart that's underneath the floorboards, and I feel it. Pastor, what do I do? And of course, we're going to get into that full throttle next week with David when he has a right and beautiful response, but this is what we're going to learn next week. I'll give you a preview. The steps are so easy, but so di- significantly difficult to follow through on. Confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to the ones that you've hurt. Make amends. And accept whatever consequences occur. That is what we're going to learn next week. And that is the way to have rest in your soul, to be clean before God. David's story is an iconic one for so many reasons, but because it it represents our own lives. It speaks to every generation. It speaks to every culture. Because we all understand what it means to sin and to cover up. It's just endemic to our human nature. And so my prayer is today that David's story saves you from so much pain and so much heartache. When temptation arrives, and it will, lean not on your own resources, but lean upon the resources given by God through the Holy Spirit who says, I've come alongside you to lead you into all truth, into all purity, and into ultimate peace with God. Let's pray. Lord, this is a riveting passage, a hard-hitting passage. And one, Lord, that we need, even if it doesn't feel good to hear it. David, (laughs) the iconic king of the entire Israel nation, stumbles and falls. And Lord, if he can, so can we. And we're praying, Lord, through the Spirit, that we would be individuals that would confess freely. That we would be individuals who would not seek to do the cover-up game on and on and on. And so, Lord, enter our lives with your spirit in order to convince us that we indeed can be forgiven in Christ and that your way is the right way always and that we want peace with you above all things else. Thank you, Lord, again for your word which always just strikes at the very heart of the matter. We love you for it. We pray in Christ's name, amen.